Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It is great to see you. If you're joining us online, we are really grateful you're worshiping with us as well. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is just a joy to have you with us. You know, we're in what will end up being an almost year-long study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And really, the, the book of 1 Corinthians was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It was a church that he started, a church that he loved, and then um, went away from, and he heard that there were some challenges that they were facing. They'd, they'd lost their way a bit. They were experiencing the challenges of trying to live an orthodox faith in a culture of hostility. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Yeah, I think there's so many ways that we can relate to this letter to the Corinthians because we live in a very similar environment today. And so what we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul is how to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus in a culture where that's not easy and where we face challenges at almost every turn. You know, we are rapidly approaching one of my favorite holidays of the year, 4th of July. Who's with me? Who's with me? I love the fireworks, I love the barbecue, I love the chance to celebrate our freedom that we have in this country. It is one of my favorite, yeah, well, a few clap, clap, clap for the fourth, right on. As you know, the, the story of our republic is, is just remarkable. I mean, there were these pilgrims that traveled over here in the early 1600s. And then uh, for about 150 years, there was uh, a sense of growing in the colonies. And, and then some unrest between those in the colonies and the motherland of Great Britain. And then eventually all of that, that unrest came to a head in the mid-1770s. Where in 1773, the colonies rose up and said, listen, we are not going to accept um, a taxation without what? Representation. Yeah, so you passed history in high school. Praise be to God, right? And so in response to that, being taxed without having any representatives, they took uh, about 342 chests of tea and they launched it in to the harbor and what we now know of as the Boston Tea Party. Did you know that it took 100 people over three hours to execute this event, right? So it wasn't just like, hey, we're ticked at you, Great Britain, right? It was, hey, we're ticked at you, and for an hour, we are going to toss what would end up being roughly a million dollars worth of tea into the harbor. It was quite the feat. It was an act of defiance, an act of really of waging of war. And then after that, a number of years later, in uh, 1776, on July 4th, the Second Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence, where we said, the heck with you, Great Britain, we're on our own, thank you very much, right? And from there, our nation started to develop. We developed the Constitution, and then subsequently, to run right alongside of the Constitution, the Bill of, the Bill of Rights. Exactly. And in that Bill of Rights, we state as a nation that there are some rights that are inalienable. Uh, meaning that there, it's a right that can't be restrained or repealed by any sort of human law. That every single person is endowed with these just simply because they are human. Now, it took us a few years to really live out these rights, and that was a challenge, but... 
And, and without going into an entire history lesson this morning, I would just want to say to us that if you are an American, and most of us are here today, not everybody, most of us are, that that is really, this Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the fact that we are endowed with rights, is really the, the operating system that runs in the background of all of our minds. In so many ways, it's the air that we breathe, whether we recognize it or not. We have this sort of anti-authoritarianism and fierce independence that is just woven into the fabric of our national psyche. So much so that we live into that even when we don't recognize that we're living into it. My guess is you saw this a few weeks ago. That at the latest devastating school shooting in Texas... That less than a few hours after that shooting, social media and the 24-hour news outlets immediately erupted, not into lament, but into debate. Debating the rights that we have or shouldn't have as citizens of the United States. I mean, there were still people on life support, and we were debating gun rights. Now... If you're fearful that I'm about to weigh in on this discussion, I assure you I am not. Because <laughs> I love my job. And, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because it's, it is divisive, right? It, it is divisive. We have different views on that, and that is okay. Do I have opinions about it? Absolutely. I pastored a community through not one but two school shootings in Colorado. So that hits very close to home for me. But... What I want us to do is just recognize at the onset of our time that our rights as Americans are a big deal to us. Can I get an amen? They are a big deal to us. And over the last few years, as some of those rights have started to be pushed back against, we've seen our national sort of psyche of going, well, we, we own these rights rise to the very surface. Rights like freedom of speech that have come into question. Rights like the ability to leave our home that have come into question. Rights like that we get to decide whether or not we get a vaccine that have come into question. Rights like deciding whether or not we're going to wear a mask that have come into question. Does anybody sense their blood pressure rising just a little bit? <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of my goal. That's sort of my goal. Is I want us to feel the tension as we step into this passage, because we need to rub up against those things that are in our national psyche if this passage of scripture is going to rub off on us. Because not everybody around the globe would have the same OS running in the back of their mind as they read this passage of scripture, but that's the operating system that we live in. That's the air that we breathe. And I think in some ways, the scriptures are gonna maybe subtly start to push against that a little bit this morning, if we will allow it to. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And with all that in the background, I just want to point out, Josh, Pastor Josh did a great job unpacking Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 last week. And in it, he made the point that our rights are less important than our responsibility to love one another. Our rights are less important than our responsibility to love one another. And that was the point that the Apostle Paul made in chapter 8. And in so many ways, I think his point could be summarized by verse 13 where he wrote this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And you just want to write back and say, hey, brother, have you ever had just a really good steak? Like, come on, let's not, let's not take it to the extreme like that. 
Paul. And yet, that's, that's why he said there were a number of people in Corinth who were coming out of a pagan background. They had sacrificed food to idols as an act of worship. And so even though Paul will say to that church, listen, an idol is nothing, they had a conscience that just couldn't allow themselves to go there. And so this food that was being sold that had been sacrificed to idols, they were free to eat it, but their conscience wouldn't let them eat it. And so Paul says, listen, if your conscience prevents you from being able to eat meat, I'm not going to eat meat either so that I don't cause you to stumble. That's sacrifice, is it not? That's love. And that's sort of the jumping off point of where Paul goes in chapter 9. Because now he starts to build on that point and he uses a personal illustration. He says, listen, I've done the exact same thing in your midst. You may not have seen it like that, but that's exactly what I did in ministering to you as the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Do you have it open? I hope you do because I'm not going to have the first 12 verses on the screen behind me. So... The murmuring, Uh uh-oh, okay, he really meant it this time. (laughs) Am I not free, Paul writes? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, just a quick timeout. Evidently, there were some within Corinth who were questioning Paul's apostolic authority. He makes a statement, listen, I've seen the risen Lord. And even if you want to push back on all the other reasons that you think I may not be a legitimate apostle, he looks at the church in Corinth and he goes, you are my evidence that I am in fact an apostle. He says, essentially, the proof is in the pudding, you guys. I I gave birth to this church, and you have experienced the fruit of my ministry. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who had examined me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating its fruit? Who tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? Now stick with him. He's he's building up to a point. He's making the case that in all of these other professions, people benefit from the work that they put in. And he's going to make the point that he has the right to do the exact same thing as an apostle of Jesus. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Now this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And it quite literally meant that when an oxen is treading grain, when it's working the field or when it's working in a silo, that it is able to eat while it is working. Paul says, I have the same right as an apostle. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope that the sh- and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? 
He's going, listen, listen. There are others who have come into Corinth who have taught and who have benefited financially from that teaching. He goes, we have the right to do the exact same thing. His, his point in these first 12 verses is essentially, I have the right to get paid for the spiritual work that I did in your midst, and yet I didn't exercise that right. Now, that started to come in, bring his apostleship into question in the church at Corinth. Because some were looking at him going, listen, if you really were an apostle, you would have gotten paid for the work that you did. In fact, it's one of the reasons we doubt that you are legitimate. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Let me take all the questions out of it. Let me tell you why I didn't make use of this right. I didn't get paid. And here's what he says, verse 12. Nevertheless, we had not made use of this, say it with me, menial faith, right. But we endure anything rather than put a, what? Obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We have not made use of this right. Let's just admit that that sounds a little bit strange to our ears, does it not? Because rights are there for us to make use of them. It's like holding a, a fast pass and standing in line at Disneyland. It would be like sitting down and on an airplane and choosing on Southwest, choosing the middle seat, even though the aisle and the window are open. That's crazy talk. It's like holding a winning lottery ticket and deciding I'm not going to cash it in. It's like getting to a four-way stop first and deferring to everybody else who's there. It's craziness, right? And in our thinking, the point of having rights is enjoying the benefits of those rights. And in Paul's estimation, there's something that's more important than your rights. What is it? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. And see, here's what Paul understood. Paul understood, if I take advantage of the rights that I have as an apostle, they are rights that are legitimately his. If I take advantage of those rights, there is a potential that in doing so, I will put an obstacle in between the people of Corinth and the gospel. And so Paul, instead of saying, they're my rights and I'm going to execute them and I don't care how it affects the people around me, I have a right to it. He goes, no, 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 I am going to prayerfully discern whether or not I should execute those rights or whether I should lay them down. Because maybe in executing my rights, I put an obstacle in between me and uh, in between Jesus and the people of Corinth and I don't want any part of that, he says. I think this word obstacle can be best illustrated by um, there's a sign as you drive through the mountains in Colorado that says, beware rock slide. Right? And there's potential for you to come around a curve and to have a, had a boulder that just trumbles down the hill and lands right in the middle of the freeway. Do you know what happens if you have one of these boulders that sits on the freeway? Not a whole lot. That's what happens. Like, people back up for, for hours and hours and hours waiting for it to be moved. And Paul says, 
executing my rights had the potential to block the people in Corinth from experiencing the goodness of Jesus. So I'm not going to exercise my rights. And here's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that a right surrendered is often more powerful than a right exercised. A right surrendered is often more powerful than a right exercised. And surrendering your rights might not be more powerful if you're trying to build a brand or create a platform, if you're trying to maximize your own personal joy and enjoyment in life, if you're trying to get what you deserve, it may not be more powerful. But if your desire is that other people might hear the good news, grace, and love, mercy of Jesus, then maybe, just maybe, surrendering your rights is more powerful than exercising them. Now, let me try to clearly state what I'm not saying, okay? And some of you laugh because you're like, thank goodness. Um, <clears throat> Here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we should universally and unequivocally lay down all of our rights, period. That is not what I'm saying. I am well aware that when on a large scale people surrender their rights, there are those who are evil and who are in positions of power that start to take advantage of people who have surrendered their rights. We have seen ruthless, dictator-driven regimes all over the globe prove that point over and over throughout the pages of history. Sometimes the best way to love the people around you is to fight for your rights. But not every time. And so what Paul pushes back against is any sort of easy, locked-in, pat answer to you always execute your rights or you always lay down your rights. And he wants us to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. He wants us to prayerfully discern in each instance we're in, is this right more powerful when it's surrendered or is it more powerful when it's exercised? And we don't have a clear answer for exactly when to lay it right down and when to exercise it. But we should, as followers of Jesus, always ask ourselves that question. And so in doing that, Paul starts to draw out a few perspective shifts that we're going to have to embrace if we're going to go with him on this journey of assuming that a right surrendered is often more powerful than a right exercised. And there's three shifts that he makes that I want to propose that we ought to consider making as well. Here's the first shift. And we see it in verse 12, and we see it back all the way throughout chapter 8 as well. By the way, chapter 8 through chapter 10 are really one essential argument. And in that chapter, he said that gaining influence is more important than getting what we deserve. Gaining influence is more important than getting what we deserve. See, in Paul's estimation, a right that's exercised, especially his right to collect financial um, material goods for his preaching of the gospel, that would have benefited him. But surrendering that right had a multiplication effect. It benefited all of the people around him. And so let me just pause to point out, if we're going to go with Paul on this journey, assuming that a right surrendered is often more important than a right exercised, we have to want the same thing that the Apostle Paul wanted. And what he wanted was to have influence on the people around him. I would argue that in reading the Apostle Paul, that was one of his highest 
goals. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he wrote this. For the love of Christ, say this word with me, church, controls us. Other passages or other translations would say compels us. The picture is like this is the wind in the sails of the Jesus follower. The love of Christ. That's the new operating system. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. See, we have to want people to be changed through the gospel more than we want to exercise our rights. And let's just pause and say, ouch, that's not easy. It's not easy. It's, 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 not, it's not natural because if I have the right to defend myself against something somebody said against me, I want to do that. How about you? If I have the right to have a zinger response and as a comeback to what somebody says, oh gosh, I, well, that feels so good, doesn't it? If somebody treats me poorly, I want the right to give them the cold shoulder. Oh, just me? Somebody says something stupid on social media, I want to respond and tell the world how dumb they are. Who's with me? Come on. I mean, and, and yet, what the Apostle Paul would say is uh, maybe those rights are more powerful when they're laid down than when they are executed. And here's what's really, really interesting, you guys. Usually we assume that what stands in between people and the gospel is information. If only they had the right information. If only they knew, fill in the blank, then certainly they would come to faith in Jesus. But what if, what if, what if, what if what stands in between people and the gospel is Christians? What if it's not information? What if they know all the right information? But, but we have created an obstacle. That's what Paul says he did not want to do, so he laid down his rights. But I just wonder, have we laid that same weight on our shoulders that the Apostle Paul lays on his? See, the way that we represent Jesus will have a bearing on whether or not people receive Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. Or maybe we might say it like this, that the way we represent Jesus is just as important as the information we present about Jesus. And see, influence, man, I wish it worked this way. Influence doesn't come through winning arguments. It comes through love. And I wish I could tell you, hey, you guys, people are going to know that we are Christians by the way that we win those arguments. We just know it doesn't work that way. It's the reason that that zinger of a post you shared online was only liked by people that already agreed with you. Nobody commented and went, that's a great point. Well, because we live in this digital echo chamber, right? 
And the way that we represent Jesus is just as important as the information that we present about him. So when the Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, certainly social media wasn't a thing and the digital world wasn't a thing, but the same issues were still present. And I think he laid down in chapter 8 and 9 a really, really good um, way to think about influence. So if that's what we want, if that's what you want, let me give you three things that I think we have to do if we're going to be people of influence. Number one, Paul said in chapter 8, verse 7, he said that some people, because of their former association, struggle with eating food sacrificed to idols. Meaning that their history prevented them from being able to enjoy these meals. The places that they've been, the things that they'd been a part of. And so what would Paul say to the church in order to know whether or not you should eat food sacrificed to idols around someone? Well, you would have to listen to their story, wouldn't you? You'd have to hear where they're coming from and know what they struggle with. Love is not a one-size-fits-all. We do this in every single instance. And those who, people who have multiple kids, you know that your kids need to receive love in different ways, and so do the rest of the people around you. Now, what's fascinating to me as I read through chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that Paul did not say, teach the people why they are allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's what I wish he would have said, to be quite honest with you. I wish he would have said, like, unpack, here's three really, really good reasons that people don't need to have a check in their conscience when they eat that really delicious medium rare steak. But he didn't say that. He said, meet them wherever they are, even if where they are is wrong. And here's his point. His point is, well, here's how we do this thing that we call influence and thing that we call love. We, we defer to the weaknesses of others, even when they're wrong. This grates on me, you guys. Because I want to convince people of what's true. But Paul says, meet them where they are. And it'll give you the right to be heard. And then after you listen to their story, and figure out where they're coming from. And after you defer to their weakness, then here's what you do. You do what's best for you. <laughs> no, you, you do what's best for them. And if you want a really short, really concise, really sort of down-to-earth, non-theological definition of the word love, here's what it means. Doing the best for someone else. That's what it looks like to love. So what's best for them in that instance. I love the way that Paul wrote it to the church in Galatia. He said this, for we were called to freedom, brothers. Somebody say amen. amen. Only do not use your freedom, he writes, as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. Through love to serve one another. And see, here's the thing, here's the thing. Remember, remember that you can be a Christian without rights. You can. It is possible. People do it all over the globe. You can be a Christian without rights, but you cannot be a Christian without love. And so he says, here's what we do. We listen to their story. We defer to their weakness, even if they're wrong, and we do what's best for them. That's what it looks like to live in a way that has influence, even if it means we don't get what we deserve. Second, here's what he says. He says this, 
<laughs> but we endure how much, Emmanuel Faith? Anything. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We endure anything? That seems a bit extreme, Paul. And he goes, yeah, anything. Like even giving up the ability to eat that really, really delicious dinner. <laughs> and, and even the ability to be paid for the work that I'm putting in. He goes, I, I would rather work myself to the bone than create an obstacle in between people and the gospel. In fact, this is what Paul did almost everywhere he went. Look at the way that he put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. For he said, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked night and day that we would not put a burden on any of you. And while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, I want, I want to make this point because sometimes we think, well, if God is calling me to surrender these rights instead of exercising them, and they're more powerful when I do that, then certainly that would be the path of least resistance. God would make that easy. And Paul goes, just the opposite. It would have been way easier to not stay up late at night, late at night making tents after I had preached all day. It would have been way easier to get paid, he says. And so Paul wants to push back and he wants to have a perspective shift where we would say, okay, we are willing, so that we don't put an obstacle in front of anybody, we are willing to endure hardship over choosing what we might call easy living or the path of least resistance. And I just want to point out that Paul is starting to ask an entirely different set of questions. He's not asking, what do I deserve and how can I maximize my enjoyment based on the rights that I have and what I am entitled to? He's looking at the people around him. And he's going, what does love demand of me? In this, in this marriage, what does love demand of me? In this workplace, what does love demand of me? In my neighborhood, with my neighbor who's a little bit off the rocker, what does love demand of me? What does that look like? And what he knows is that's not easy. It's not easy to ask that question. It's the reason he writes to the church at Galatia and he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. The only reason Paul has to tell the church in Galatia not to grow weary of doing good because it is easy to grow weary of doing good. Can I get an amen? I think there's maybe some of us in this room today and we are on fumes when it comes to doing good because it's just not being reciprocated. It's not being returned to us. So I just want to encourage you to serve even when you feel like it's your turn to be served. To continue to love even when you feel like it's not being reciprocated. And my hope is that even in just coming to this place today, that you might be spurred on towards love and good deeds. It is one of the reasons that we continue to meet together as the body of Christ. So we might look each other in the eye and say, don't give up. I, I know that it's hard. I know that it takes endurance. I know that continuing to lay down your rights, everything in you wants to exercise everything that you're entitled to, but maybe, just maybe, those rights are more powerful when they're laid down than when they are exercised. Don't give up, Emmanuel Faith. And here's the last perspective shift 
he moves into in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's making the same point again. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's going, listen, I'm not using reverse psychology here. I don't want the check in the mail. I'm not saying this so that next time you see me, you'll be like, oh, Paul, here, here you go. Here's the money that you really deserve for your work among us. He goes, that's not why I'm saying this. Verse, uh, second part of verse uh, 15. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. <laughs> Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have no reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now, this is a sort of interesting and intricate argument that Paul is making here. First, he claims that he boasts, but then instead of telling us what he boasts in, he gives us two reasons he doesn't boast. The first reason is, I don't boast because of my preaching. The second reason, I don't boast because of my calling. And his reasoning is, I don't boast in either of those two things because they are part of God's divine, sovereign call on my life. He essentially goes, I could do no other. He's going, I'm not, nobody's paying me for eating lunch. Nobody's paying me for going to the bathroom. Nobody's paying me for those things that I have to do. And he goes, preaching and working as a pastor, those are two things that I couldn't say no to even if I wanted to. So it doesn't make sense, he says, for me to get paid for those things. I think of um, the prophet Jeremiah saying this. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And Jeremiah goes, if I don't preach about him, there is going to be a minor explosion that happens on the inside. So I've got to do it. And Paul would say yes and amen to that. And here's the way he started to view his life. He started to view his life as a, say it with me, as a stewardship. A steward is somebody who attends to the needs of another. And he's going, that's my whole life. Um, this, uh, this summer, when my family and I go on vacation, we're going to have a good friend from Colorado. He and his uh, wife and four kids are going to come stay at our house. And while they are at our house, they can use whatever's ours. They can swim in our pool, they can jump on our trampoline, they can eat all the food that's in our fridge. But here's the deal. It's still our house. He gets to inhabit it as a steward, but not as a owner. And Paul's saying, I've started to view my whole life in the same way. Yeah, I get to use all of this stuff but it's not mine. My money is not mine. My time isn't mine. My family's not mine. It is all his. And it's this third perspective shift that he starts to make. And here's the shift. It's life is viewed as stewardship 
instead of ownership. And it changes everything, you guys. And I think what Paul is saying here is that surrendering our rights is simply a subset of surrendering our life. Let me put it like this. We cannot say Jesus is Lord if we're going to fight for all of our own personal rights for our own personal benefit. We have to start saying, God, is this right more powerful when it's surrendered or more powerful when it's exercised? And Paul would say he's got an entirely different reward system in mind. He says this, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my, what? Right in the gospel. He's going, I've got an entirely different reward in mind. When I showed up in Corinth, I had something different in mind. Not getting paid and not getting applause and not making friends. No, 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 no. My reward that I had in mind, Paul says, was a heavenly reward. And I was living for that. And when we realize our ultimate reward, we are willing to surrender our temporal rights. So friends, what if, what if we can only receive one of these rewards? What if we only receive that heavenly reward from our good father or we receive the reward of exercising our rights. What if we only get one of those? What if we can't have both? What then? See, I think if that's true, and it seems as though Paul is saying that he has chosen one over the other, therefore, maybe, just maybe, at least for him, he couldn't have both, and maybe we can't either. What if we started to ask ourselves the question this week, is there anything in my life that would be more powerful if it were surrendered than if it were exercised? Is there any right that I'm holding on to? Maybe in a personal relationship or maybe at work, Maybe it's bigger than that. Is there any right I'm holding on to and I'm fighting for that maybe, just maybe, would be more powerful if it were laid down? And here's the thing, you guys, please don't miss this. Look up at me as we close our time together. Please don't miss this. If we're not willing to ask ourselves that question, we are not disciples of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who it's said of. He emptied himself of all that it meant to be God. Every right he had was laid down for the sake of others. And if we're gonna live in his way, with his heart, we at least have to ask ourselves the question, God, in my life, is there anything I'm holding on to because it benefits me? that would be more powerful in the lives of others if I were willing to let it go. That's what Paul does. No obstacle. What if we said as a church, what if we said as individuals in this community of faith, we are committed to not putting any obstacles in between people and the gospel of Jesus. Come on, you guys. That is a great, praise God. So Lord, may it be true of us. May it be true of us. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us look at our lives and look at our rights. 
And some of those that are very, very, really close and dear to our hearts, God. But would you help us to just honestly assess, is there any way I'm putting up obstacles in between you and people that I care about? Is there any way that I'm fighting to be right over longing to live in the way of love? And and then Lord, I pray that you would convict us by your grace and your mercy in areas where we're off. Lead us to repentance, God. And then I pray that in obedience as we walk with you, we might experience the joy of knowing that you abide in us and that you love us and that you're for us. I pray that just like the apostle Paul saw, many come to faith in Jesus, that we would see the same thing. Lord, help us get out of the way that your glory and your grace might be more fully on display. So God, if there's any way we're exercising a right that would be more powerful if it were laid down, show us, please. Show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.